We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right the danger zone. It's 30 January 1933 and we're in Berlin. Well, I can't believe what I've been seeing happen. It's beginning to look a lot like Adolf Hitler is going to become the new Chancellor of Germany. Incredible. If Hitler isn't made the Chancellor today and soon, the rumour is that the army is going to stage a coup. And that's for sure and certain. Then they'll put von Schleicher back in charge. Everyone agrees that Germany could suffer no worse fate. So I'm going to pop over now to von Papen's apartment where everything is happening. I have to say that Thank goodness for von Papen. There's another right-wing paramilitary group like the Nazi stormtroopers. It's called the Steel Helmets, the Stahelm. It has millions of members. Its two leaders, Theodor Dusterberg and Franz Selt, are just going into a meeting with von Papen now in his apartment. The Stahelm is the paramilitary arm of the DNVP party, a right-wing conservative party headed by Alfred Hugenberg, the most boring man in Germany. It's ten o'clock. I've just arrived and I'm listening in to the conversation. Don't worry, I'll share with you what I hear. Papen's just finished telling them about the coup that the army will be staging today, probably, at any time. There's no time to lose unless they want von Schleicher back. They're resisting. Franz Selt says, We will not agree to giving Hitler the Prussian Ministry of the Interior. I think that's only fair. Deadlocked, Dusterberg and Selt are storming out of the meeting. Where are they going? I'll follow them. They're crossing the street and they're heading to President Hindenburg's office. But it's locked. Oscar von Hindenburg's there. He's still fuming over Schleicher's involvement in the plot to stage a coup and to seize his father. I should remind you, dear listener, that the idea of a coup is actually something that von Papen has cooked up to force everyone's hands so that he'll end up as the vice-chancellor. Oh, that's right, Hitler will be the chancellor as well, but that's just as a puppet for von Papen. Dusterberg and Selt are now going back to Papen's apartment. I'm still following them. When we all go in, some new people are there. Hitler and Goering have turned up. Selt is sold on the idea of giving the Nazis what they want by Papen now, but Dusterberg is dead set against it. No way. Goebbels, Nazi press, have been savaging him for a long time now. When Hitler offers his hand to Dusterberg, he refuses it. 
Hitler and Goering are excusing themselves and going off to one side. They're speaking in hushed tones. I can't hear what is being said. Uh, Hitler's turning around now and he's walking back to Deusterberg. I'll bet he's going to give him one hell of a serve. But no, Hitler's speaking in sombre tones. I regret the malicious abuse levelled against you in my press. I give you my word that it was not done on my instructions. Oh, look at that. Justerberg's moved. And now he's offering Hitler his hand. They shake. You can see why Goebbels has been kept away from this meeting. That's newsworthy. The Starhelm have agreed to Hitler's demands. Immediate elections and his men to have the ministries for the interior in Germany and Prussia. Okay, all done. Von Papen says, let's go and meet with von Hindenburg. We must be sworn in immediately. It's now just before 11 o'clock on 30 January 1933. They're all trooping off together now to see the president. But first, they have to stop off at the offices of the president's aide, Otto Meisner. So as I said, it's a done deal. Hitler will be the chancellor. There's, you've heard it first from me. As they get to Meisner's office, they're meeting Konstantin von Neurath, the foreign minister, and Graf Schwerin von Krosik, the finance minister. They've been told to sit and wait for the others to arrive. Krosik has never met Hitler before. He starts to tell Hitler about the fiscal policy that Germany needs to follow. Hitler's obviously not remotely interested. Look at that. Discuss the details with Göring. He's more concerned with these matters than I am. While they're waiting to be summoned up to be sworn in by President Hindenburg, Hitler again says that the first thing he wants to happen is for elections to be held. This is news, and unwelcome news, to Hugenberg. Pepin had kept this quiet, but now Hitler has let the cat out of the bag. Well, things are getting heated between these two. I don't think this whole deal is going to happen, not with the way things are developing right now in front of me. Hang on. Hitler's turning on the charm again. And a very charming man he can be when he wants to be. Hitler says, I give my word of honour that I will not change the cabinet after the election. Jukenberg is unimpressed. I'm not surprised. Von Papen tries his charm. You're endangering nationalist unity. How can you doubt this man's word? Well, Hugenberg does doubt this man's word, and he's refusing to go into Hitler's cabinet if there's going to be an immediate election. Well, the doors are flying open, and Otto Meisner's coming in in a tears. Gentlemen, you were due to be sworn in at 11 o'clock. It's now 11.15. You cannot keep the president waiting any longer. Hugenberg's hungry for power, and now it's within easy reach. There's an obvious way out for him. Is he going to take it? It's up to the president whether to dissolve parliament or not. Uh, well played. That lets him off the hook, and he can now agree. Goering jumps straight into it. Well, that's everything sorted. We can go up now. 
They all start to go up the stairway, some getting in the way of the others, some near falls, some bounding up the stairs. What a sight! They enter the meeting room, but there's no Hindenburg there. After a few minutes, he comes in. He's wearing a frock coat. Von Papen reads out the name of the 12 ministers. Only the Ministry of Justice is not being filled. Hindenburg has been told that it will go to the Christian parties. That's another one of Papen's lies. A time to remember, I reckon. It's 11.30 o'clock on Monday, 30 January 1933. 43-year-old. Adolf Hitler is sworn in as the Chancellor of Germany. Shh, he's taking the oath. Be quiet. I swear I will devote all my energies to the welfare of the German people, protect the laws of the German nation, diligently fulfill the duties incumbent upon me, and conduct my affairs without party bias and equitably towards all people. Well, the Jews will be relieved to know that Hitler's oath requires him to treat everyone fairly, even the Jews. With only three out of 13 cabinet posts, von Papen is obviously going to be able to control Hitler. It will be a von Papen government, but without his name at the top. The people in the cabinet, between them, hold just 248 out of 560 seats in the Reichstag, not a majority. I think von Papen has hoodwinked the president. But then again, I think the president is only too glad to hand government back to the politicians. He's just finished swearing in the last man. He's about to speak. I think these will be his final words before they leave. And now, gentlemen, go forth with God. Well, now what? Across the street from the chancellery where Hitler is being sworn in, from a window in the Kaiserhof Hotel, the head of the Nazi stormtroopers, Ernst Röhm, is holding a pair of binoculars and he's got them focused on the door of the chancellery. Ah, now the doors are flung open. Hermann Goering's the first man out. He's shouting something to Hitler, but from this distance you can't hear it. And now Hitler's coming out. He steps up into the open-top Mercedes. He stands upright, stiff, erect, every bit the leader. He's being driven across the street to the Kaiserhof Hotel. Oh my God, there are tears streaming down his cheeks. The first time I think Hitler is ever recorded as crying. He's calling out loudly, repeating the same words over and over again. Rex Harrison's words. We did it! We did it! His car is pulling up now and Hitler's stepping out. Members of the Nazi party are there cheering him on. The mood's jubilant, clapping, cheering. Hail Hitler! He's walking to the left. The doors are being held open. He steps in and says in a loud voice, We are ready. He's in the room now. I'm standing back a little. Goebbels is there. He and Hitler are staring at each other. Tears are again streaming down. His face, Goebbels' face for that matter, so happy. Everyone is so happy. Only Hitler and Goebbels seem to have believed that this day would come. Early that afternoon, a photograph is taken of Hitler sitting behind the desk at the Chancellery for the first time. Hitler is looking off into the middle distance. 
There are about 500,000 Jews in Germany today. Maybe they're feeling a bit nervous, a bit insecure about what the future holds for them. Still, I'm sure it's all talk. It's now five o'clock on the afternoon of 30 January 1933. The first meeting of the Hitler cabinet is underway. Hitler puts a motion for elections to be held immediately. Eukenberg's arguing against it. No surprises there. Uh, but a majority have passed the vote. The eyes have it. Author Christopher Isherwood smiles at the news of Hitler being the new Chancellor. He writes a letter back home. As you will see, we have a new government with Charlie Chaplin and Father Christmas in the ministry. All words fail. Hitler will be exposed as a windbag. He'll never be able to cope with the country's shambolic economy. The men making up the top ranks of the Nazi party are a dynamically exciting bunch of young men. Hitler is just 43, about to turn 44. Goering is 40. Joachim von Ribbentrop is 40. Himmler is 36. And Goebbels is the baby of the bunch at just 27. If I could see into the future, I'd almost say that it was like how the Kennedys were seen when John Fitzgerald Kennedy became the President of the United States. He's the same age that Hitler is when he became the Chancellor. And Kennedy's brother Robert became the Attorney General at the same age as Himmler, 36. The Nazi party paper, the Volkisko Biobachter's editor, has tried to put into words the historic moment that has finally arrived. It reads, banner headline, The Foundation of the Third Reich. 30 January 1933 will someday be written into the history books as a moment of radical change in the development of Germany. After 14 years of extraordinary sacrifice and work, today Adolf Hitler has risen to the position he has long deserved. A feeling of unbounded pride is shared by all the millions of people whose longing, struggling and devotion during these years represented their desire to redress the ignominy of 9 November 1918. Are we in for another Camelot? I've just got my hands on the copy that was written by the reporter for the Sunday Times that will be published shortly in England about what has happened. I think he's nailed it. He says, Have President von Hindenburg and his comrade Herr von Pepin got Hitler into a cage before they wring his neck? Or are they in the cage? The beautiful and intelligent Jewess Bella Fromm I've just heard has made this comment, which I think is very witty and smart and insightful, about the new Hitler government. She said, It seems an ironic foreshadowing that the new Hitler cabinet should start out without a minister for justice. The business-savvy publisher of Hitler's Mein Kampf has managed to get a newspaper ad in for the next edition. It reads, Book of the Day, Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. What will Adolf do? Today, millions of hopeful Germans are wondering. 
This question can be answered by anybody who knows his work and thus his desires and goals. Nobody with a friend or foe can now afford to overlook Hitler's opus, two editions, two paperback volumes, 2.85 marks each, both volumes in full cloth binding, for 720 marks, available in every German bookshop. Our American communist trade union official, Jew, Abraham Plotkin, walks down the Mark Grafenstrasse towards Leipzigstrasse. As he does, he sees a Nazi torchlight parade. Then he sees more and more of them. Thousands streaming towards Wilhelmstrasse. 25,000 stormtroopers and SS men are now marching in Berlin, and thousands more of the steel helmets are joining in. Torchlight Parade. Well, that's an act of genius. I wonder who came up with that idea. Oh, I'm not shocked to learn that it was our friend Joseph Goebbels who had the idea to do that. Oh, yes, and Magda Goebbels, she's still in hospital. Joseph is heading there right now to visit her, and I'm sure he's going to share the good news about Hitler now being the Chancellor, if she hasn't already heard from the noises and cheering in the streets. Endless columns of SA and SS men march past the balcony that Hitler is standing on at the Kaiserhof Hotel. He's sharing the balcony with Franz von Papen. He leans over and says to him, What a tremendous task lies ahead of us, Herr von Papen. We must never part company until our work is done. There's an army man in uniform who's leading a march in the town of Bamberg. Excited and proud he is of the coming to power of Adolf Hitler, the Nazis. So much hope for the future. His name is Lieutenant Klaus von Stauffenberg. Now, if I had a crystal ball, I could see that they would make a movie about the dramatic events in this man's life. Stauffenberg will be played by Tom Cruise in a movie called Valkyrie. On 20 July 1944, just over 11 years from today, Stauffenberg will place a bomb near Hitler's feet in his headquarters in East Prussia in a failed attempt to assassinate him. Tonight, Stauffenberg's mood is entirely different as he enthusiastically celebrates this new leader, a gift to the people of Germany. The good news, the comforting thing is that Hitler, with just a small number on the cabinet, won't be able to get his way. But I will leave what happens next to another series of programs. Late in the evening, long after the last SA and SS men have marched past the Kaiserhof Hotel, Hitler is strolling through the snowy ministry gardens of the Chancellery, with some colleagues. Soon they're going to cross the road to the Kaiserhof Hotel and collapse. Exhausted into bed. But I think I owe it to you, my dear listeners, to let you know what the future will hold for some of the people who have populated this my story. On 30 June 1934, General Kurt von Schleicher, the man who had tried 
to rebuild Germany as its last chancellor before Hitler and his wife Elizabeth will be murdered in their home in Berlin by the SS. Schleicher's private papers that may have said things about Hitler that he didn't want to get out will be taken and will never be seen again. Who knows, things turn up sometimes, but I suspect these would have been completely burnt at the time. The beautiful Bella Fromm, the Jewess, will be forbidden from continuing to work in Germany after 1934. In 1938, she will be lucky enough to emigrate to the United States. The author, Christopher Isherwood, will leave Germany in May 1933, and from 1939 he will live in the United States. Gregor Strasser had been the leading member of the left-wing faction of the Nazi party. He had been a powerful man. It was his resignation in late 1932 that looked like it might have torn the Nazi party apart. But Strasser ceased being politically active and probably made it possible for Hitler to come to power now. On 30 June 1934, he too will be shot and killed by the SS. Oskar von Hindenburg, who had gotten behind Hitler, becoming the Chancellor, served as a general in the German army in World War II. He survived the war. Otto Meisner, who had worked for President Hindenburg as chief of the Chancellery, continued on in that role for Adolf Hitler when he merged his role as Chancellor with the role of the President. Otto Meisner was tried after the war, but acquitted. He seemed to have been a public servant, basically. Many of the people that had served the government before the Nazis came to power continued to serve Germany under the Nazis. Von Papen will survive the war. He will be tried as a main perpetrator of World War II. He will be sentenced to prison and will serve a two-year sentence. In just over five years from now, when we're talking and watching Hitler's moment of his greatest triumph in some ways, Hitler, his mistress Eva Braun, Joseph Goebbels, his wife Magda, and their seven young daughters will all be dead. Magda will poison her little girls before taking her own life. Himmler will poison himself before he's captured by the Allies. Goering will be captured and, to his surprise, tried as a war criminal. He will be sentenced to death by hanging. He will cheat the hangman by poison that will apparently be smuggled into his cell. Ribbentrop will be convicted at the Nuremberg trials and he will be hung in October 1946. The story of what happened in the months after Hitler came to power is a remarkable and chilling one. Here's some newsreel footage from 1936, just three years after Hitler had come to power. The predictions that he would be the controlled, tame bunny of von Papen don't appear to have worked out terribly well. This year they say there are 800,000 pairs of boots standing heel to heel. Waiting for the Führer's final speech, Hitler cries, My life's fight has not been in vain. So 
Sowjet zeigen, soll er vor sich herdragen und wir werden in unserem Zeichen wieder siegen. Those few months after Hitler comes to power will be the subject of another series of programs. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in the Danger Zone. If you liked this program, you will definitely love my other program, C-Y-K-I-A-E. What does that even mean? You have to listen to find out.